0: All right, good morning. How is everyone? Well, Lord willing, this will be the last time I'm with you because I want Combs to feel better. And uh, <clears throat> so if you weren't here last week, my name's Tim Miller. Uh, they, uh, I, I was contacted last week to see whether I'd be able to stand in the place of Dr. Combs as he was in the hospital at that point. And now, from what I understand, he's at home and he's recovering and Lord willing, he'll be back with you next week in order to finish whatever series he's in the midst of. Uh, but when I was invited to come, I was invited to just simply do whatever I would like. Well, since <clears throat> this morning, I already taught at Inner City Baptist Church in their ABF. Uh, all I'm doing is I'm taking the ABF I was teaching there and I'm moving it on over here. So uh, this, is, this is go number two. And, uh, and, and today we're going to talk about the element of surprise. Uh, because the passage that we're dealing with here in 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about surprise. And so let's read the passage and then we'll talk about why we're going to talk about surprise. I think you'll see it as we read through the passage. We're going to begin with verse 1 because it's, in the, it's, it's within a context, a paragraph. So we begin in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because, <clears throat> because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless while living, and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that though they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, that they would live according to God in regard to the Spirit." So you noticed as we were reading through that passage, verse number four is the reason I'm going to talk about surprise here. Because it says, in which they are surprised. Now last week, we talked about the fact that Christians who are walking this path of life should recognize that suffering is going to come. And we talked about how to handle that suffering. Uh, And the suffering comes partly as a result of the fact that we've been changed. And we'll talk more about that today. But it says in verse four, they are surprised. Do you like to be surprised? It sort of depends, doesn't it? Just last night, my wife and I were uh, were with our daughters. Two of them were playing war. I had already been destroyed, and so I was out already. So my two daughters are going back and forth to see who's going to end up winning in this game of war. And then my third daughter is sitting over doing something else. I'm not sure what. Now, we have had a plan to go to Orlando for next week. So basically, it's the week before Christmas. The girls love Orlando, great weather, all that. So uh, we have been debating exactly how we were going to break this news to them, if we were going to wait till the night before, that sort of thing. But my wife and I decided that it was just going to be too difficult. Somewhere along the way, somebody was going to make some comment, or uh, we were going to make the comment and then we had to get packed somehow, and so we just said, you know what, let's just tell them tonight. And so in the midst of, of all this, uh, the game's going on, and my other daughter sitting in the corner, and my, my wife says, well, you know, we're, uh, you know, next week when we're in Orlando, it's, it's going to be warmer weather. And my two daughters playing the game have no clue what's going on in life. They're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my third daughter picked up on it and said, what? <laughs> We're going to Orlando? And then, you know, they, I mean, the, the thing they're most excited about, anybody know what the thing they're most excited about? N- not the beach. Not the, I mean, the hot tub's my deal, right? Like, um, <clears throat> they're most excited about the flight. <laughs> That's the thing I'm most not excited about. But they just, you know, they've only flown once, and so they're they're just thrilled about this. So it was a surprise. It was something unexpected. That's what a surprise is. Something unexpected. And we like surprises when they're good. We don't like surprises when they're bad. Sometimes the unexpected comes upon us, and we find out that something is happening that we didn't want to take place. But the surprise comes by means of the unexpected, here in this passage, I'm going to suggest that there are three surprises that appear within this passage. The first one is the most evident because the text itself draws our attention to it. It says this in verse 4, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless while living. And so the first point I want to say from this passage is this. The believer's life should be surprising. The believer's life should be surprising. Well, to who? To who should our life be surprising? Well, you'll notice this passage, it says they are surprised. Who are the they? Well, it refers back to the previous context. You see, it says that the time that's passed is sufficient. The cup is full. We've had enough time to do the things that the Gentiles want to do. Now, in one sense, you say, well, I am a Gentile because I'm not a Jew. So yes, except that Peter is actually associating all believers with a new entity. We are a called out people who are neither Jew nor Gentile. We are the church. And so he doesn't consider us Gentiles. What he means then by Gentiles is the people of this world. And so he says, you're through doing what the people of this world do, living in sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, law- lawless idolatry. And now you live a new, new sort of life. And then it says in verse 4, and they are surprised. The ones who are surprised are the unbelievers. Those who you used to join in doing all these things. They're now surprised because you're not doing them with them anymore. And they're surprised because, and I think this is the point, they're surprised because everybody does these things. This is what... Our human flesh longs for, desires after these things. And yet Christians are weird. They're really odd because they refuse to pursue the things that the natural human flesh desires after. This develops the theme that Peter has been developing since verse 1. If you could go all the way back to 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, you'd see Peter says, I'm writing to you who are elect exiles. The word for exile means foreigner. You're foreigners in the world in which you used to find yourself at home. Well, we know something about foreigners. Foreigners are identified by the fact that they're foreign. (laughs) Their customs, their traditions, what they decide to do in certain contexts are different than what we would decide to do. They just don't quite fit, right? And, of course, we're the melting pot. We try to make them fit. But there's still a sense in which if you were to move from a different land to the United States of America, you would feel foreign, and the people around you would know that you're foreign. You just can't help it. Culturally, you're different. But this is what Peter's saying about believers. That you should be different. That you are a foreigner to this world. That unbelievers find us strange. They are surprised. That we don't join them. You'll notice what it says join them in their reckless, wild living. Underlying that language is actually the analogy of rushing into a raging river. And that's why I've got the picture there of a a raging river. The idea is that there's this raging river, this torrent, this, this pull of humanity that is headed in this particular direction. And humanity leaps into that and goes straight along this path that everybody's going towards. And what the Christian does is he stands by and says, I'm not jumping into that water. I'm not going in that direction. I refuse to do so. And this causes them to be surprised. So one of the things that we have to understand about the Christian life is that our lives should be surprising to unbelievers. We'll return to that in just a little bit. There's a second surprising thing. The unbeliever's response is often surprising. So if we don't leap with them into this flow of life, this appeasement of our desires... Because we find those things to be evil. We find those to be against God's law. How should unbelievers respond to that? Well, you would think that you might say something like, well, you see, I can't do that because uh, I'm following the Lord and I don't think that's right. That's not good. In fact, what you are fleeing to or what you are rushing towards is ultimately self-destructive it's going to be problematic for you and your family, and so I can't go that direction. One might think that if we're pursuing good, which is what that is, then those on the outside would look at us and say, well, that's noble of you. Good for you, pursuing what's right, pursuing what you believe is right. I mean, we hear that a lot, right? Pursue your, your truth, unless the truth is the Christian truth, and then don't pursue that, right? So I note here the unbeliever's response is often surprising because what do they actually do? Well, they're surprised, it says in verse 4, that you don't join them in their reckless wild living. And then notice what they do. And they heap abuse on you. They heap abuse on you. You know what that language actually is? If, uh, If you looked at the word, it's the word for blaspheme. They speak evil of you. They take your good conduct, your good intentions, they take that and they twist it. And they say, yes, you may have wanted to do good, whatever that is, but you are evil, you are doing evil. Uh, There's a couple of passages, Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Paul is talking about how others are speaking of his ministry And he says that some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. What he's saying is, they're blaspheming me because they're taking what I'm saying that's good. I'm not saying do evil that good may come. I'm saying that God will forgive my evil because he's good. But they're saying, well, then all that that does is it gives license. And Paul says, no, they are slandering my name. They're slandering my actions, speaking evil of me. Or how about in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul speaking of freedom in Christ, he says, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I being denounced or blasphemed because of something I thank God for? Context is, he's talking about eating food offered to idols. And he says, if somebody else condemns me for doing this, but I'm actually doing no sin in this, well then, what's the problem with them? what are they doing? They're actually blaspheming something I thank God for. They're speaking evil of my good conduct. So here, Peter then, using this same word, says, here's what unbelievers do. They're surprised that we're not living like them. And then on top of the surprise, their response is to abuse us, to to speak evil of us. Now, I think this unveils, reveals somewhat of a tension that resides within the Christian life. Because on the one hand, back in 3.13, Peter says this. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Who's going to harm you? And I think the point makes a lot of sense to us. We ask the question, who's going to come against us if our ultimate goal, if our end... Is to do good. Like who would who would oppose us? That seems like an irrational thing, doesn't it? You wouldn't oppose the person trying to do good. But you know what the next passage says in First in Peter three. It says, "Who would who would go against you if you're this way? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed." And clearly, in the context, Peter's readers are suffering for righteousness' sake. So this hypothetical question who would actually do this is answered by the fact that in fact people are doing this and this is combined then with the opposite side of it why is it that unbelievers will stand against believers in this situation well four twelve tells us that in fact we should expect that to take place Peter says this in chapter 4 verse 12 dear friends Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then notice how he goes on. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So what does he tell us in chapter 4 a little bit later from the passage we're dealing with here? He says, don't be surprised if unbelievers treat you with contempt, speak evil against you for the name of Christ because you're seeking to do good according to him. So here's the question. And it's a question I'd, I'd like to ask you. And I don't know. I mean, do, do you guys actually talk back in this setting? Okay, so, so there's some, some engagement. All right, so let's, let's try that. I may regret it. I don't know. But uh, let's try that. So here's the question. <clears throat> Why are believers persecuted for good doing? So again, unbelievers, they're surprised that we don't join them. But then... The passage says, and then they abuse us. They, they verbally abuse us. So why is this? Okay, so maybe a jealousy. All right, what else? Yeah. Okay, they, they want us to be like them. All right, yeah. Okay, so as we reflect God... Uh, they are positionally opposed to God, and so they're going to be positionally opposed to us. Yes. Now, um, a lot of okay, and I think that's a huge part. We've got to understand this, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna address that. Yeah. Okay, they've got a different standard. That is huge. We're going to talk about that as well. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, so you look at the Scripture passage. Peter says uh, he suffered in order that he would leave us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. So clearly, uh, this is something that's going to be experienced by believers, and this is why Paul says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So let me suggest three reasons, and, and you guys am, have, have hit on every one of them, that I'm going to suggest why unbelievers will bring some persecution. They'll, they'll bring verbal abuse against believers. And the first I would say is this. Okay, well, you can't read it, but uh, that first one, in the slightest white text there, <coughs> it was read. I'm not exactly sure what happened. This Proclaim software does this to me every once in a while. So uh, I'm, I'm not blaming that. I just need to know that so I don't do it again. Um, but Christians are salt is what that first, that first thing says. Christians are salt. All right, now I probably have to explain what I mean by that. Uh, do you remember in Jesus' is servant on the mount? He he gives the beatitudes and then right after the beatitudes he says you are the light of the world a city set on a hill can't be hidden neither do men light a candle put on, uh, under the table but on the table and under the uh, under a basket but on the table and it gives light to all that are in the house but it also says this and this is one I think we sometimes miss you are the salt of the earth. And then he talks about salt that loses its saltiness is no longer good for anything but to, be, but to be cast out. We are the salt of the earth. Have you ever considered what the meaning of salt of the earth is there? Uh, those of you uh, in the modern day, what do we normally use salt for? Taste, right? It's a beautiful thing. What a glorious thing. Doesn't taste good, more salt doesn't taste good more salt right (laughs) you just keep going and then pretty soon you can't taste anything anymore but the salt and you know there you go it's good Um, we tend to use it as a seasoning in the ancient world it could be used as a seasoning but that wasn't its primary use anybody know what it was primarily used for preservatives Uh, you didn't have refrigeration Uh, there just wasn't such a thing they tried a little bit. They would dig pretty deep into the ground and then try and do some things. But, but it really didn't ever work. They didn't, they didn't have refrigeration. And you think, especially in Israel, if, if you know anything about Israel, it's, it's a desert. Yeah, that's where it's at. So how do you keep your meat from decaying? There's really only way in the ancient world. You poured salt on it like you wouldn't believe. I mean, you just bathed the thing in salt. And it delayed It obviously didn't stop decay, but it delayed the decay. And do you know what the scripture text then says about believers? Is that we are to be preservatives of this world. We are decay preventers within our world. But do you know what? There are some people who prefer the decay. Most of our world prefers the decay. Do you remember we're that, there's that rushing torrent. And we're sort of the, the, the bulwark that's kind of slowing the torrent a little bit. And people aren't usually too pleased with that. And we see it in, in our world today. I mean, uh, you know, if you think about women's rights, and by that, that's code word for pro-abortion movement. Uh, it's not all that way but but a lot of it is and you think about that uh they would love to get all the christians out of the way because if they could then they could get whatever passed wherever they wanted in whatever uh, jurisdiction and all that Uh, because it's predominantly though not certainly not holy it's predominantly christians who are saying no let's let's actually talk about when life begins let's actually have a Rational and scientific conversation about this. And then a moral conversation about this. All those things play a part in it. But you see, right now, Christians stand in the way. And our culture broadly knows and believes that. Think about any of the other hot topics right now in which our culture is moving towards. uh, There is a sense in which Christianity in itself is a preservative. It's seeking to preserve, but not preserve the way things were in the 50s. That's not what I'm trying to preserve. What I'm trying to preserve is God's morality that He put within the human heart. Right? I, I don't think we should return to, um, to the 1950s in all ways. I think that actually that would be retro that'd be problematic. But I think they probably knew some things then that, you know, maybe we could learn from. I mean, not necessarily nineteen fifty, just I mean the whole history of civilization and humanity. Uh, I speak there about things like uh, homosexual marriage, that sort of thing. I mean, if you look at the current, obviously it's moving in that direction quite quickly. But if you look at historically the nations of this world, nobody's gone that way. Nobody's gone that way. And I think part of the reason is because it's against nature. This is the language of Romans chapter 1. So it's against nature. It's against God's morality. And so Christians, what do, they, what do we do? We say... That's that's not something we can embrace. We should not embrace that. Uh, And there are some who rightly then see us as the barrier to progression. That might be the language that would be used of it. Now, of course, we would say progression? Is that progress? To embrace this is this. Is this to move forward morally or to move backwards morally so so we understand that Christians to the degree that we take a stand uh, there's there's problem, problems there. Let, let me mention a second thing that I think comes alongside this as well. Just imagine my, my brother works for the IRS and he travels quite frequently uh, where uh, because he teaches for the IRS he teaches other uh, agents how to do their jobs. And so that, that's his major rule. So he, he has to travel quite a bit and he'll travel with other IRS agents. And, you know, he said, you know, oftentimes we'll be in the same vehicle together. And, and he was mentioning one context in which <clears throat> they were driving and, 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 uh, and the people in the car said, Oh, look, there's a strip club. Let, let's stop and go there. And my brother said, uh, you got to take me back to the hotel. I, I'm not going there. You know, in that moment when he said, I'm not going there, what do you think the other people felt? They felt awkward? I think there's a little bit of shame and judgmentalism, right? So, th- so here, here's the other part of it. I think that that the reason why we are maligned, we are spoken evil against, is because the moment we stand up and say, we will not go along with that because it's not right, we are reminding them of that which they're hoping to forget. See, there's, uh, according to Romans chapter 2, God has placed within the human heart a reflection of the morality of God. There's, a, there's an element within creation itself that declares to us right and wrong. And what humanity has frequently been attempting to do is to lose sight of that, to, to forget it. If you read Romans chapter 1, they, they, their minds are twisted by means of sin. So that they're trying to affirm that. At the end of Romans chapter 1 puts it this way. Paul says, not only do unbelievers do these things but they have pleasure in those that do them. You know what that's saying? It's saying they enjoy it when other people are joining them in this because do you know what that does? Hey, everybody's going this way. Yeah, I, I know there, there may be some people out there somewhere who, who say this is wrong, but, you know, we don't have to think about them. But the moment we're there and we're saying, no, no, that, that's wrong, we're reminding them of that which they would rather forget. It's a a necessary thing that Christians must do. This is what I mean by Christians being salt. But we are despised for it. So why are believers persecuted for good doing? Because we are the salt of the earth, and that is just going to be our lot in life. But second, and if you can read that, it says ignorance. Ignorance. And I think the point here is that there are some people who persecute us because of ignorance, particularly this was the case in Peter's day. Uh, If you read early Christian literature, what you'll find is that early Christians were accused of cannibalism. Well, they weren't cannibals, but they did eat the bread and drink the wine, which was the the, the body and blood of Christ. And could you not see how easily that could be miscommunicated to those who were outside the church who, who hear about this new group of people who are meeting together and they're eating blood, uh, body and blood and so they didn't quite know what Christians were doing uh, they, were, they were also accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister and, uh, and a family and then they would get married and uh, <laughs> that, that looked problematic uh, so I think sometimes it's ignorance but that plays into this third one where I'm going to develop that theme a little bit more and that it that third one says different worldview. Different worldview. We have different foundations for why we believe what we believe. You come to the same issue, and we come from vastly different perspectives to try to come to answer questions of morality. Why why would the church stand against same sex unions? Why would, why, why would that be the case? Why wouldn't this church, for instance, embrace that for its members or uh, marry those who wanted to go into that direction? And the answer comes all the way back to why we were created, who we were created for. You see, it's a whole worldview question. And the reason that we disagree with our world is because we disagree about the major questions of life. Do you know that if I believe that we were here by random chance, that it just molecules happened in whatever fashion they happened after some big bang took place, all that, oh, whatever, whatever scientific thesis that leads to us randomly being here, then I very well may agree with that whole perspective. Because we're just randomly here, so like, let people do whatever they want. But what if we're not just randomly here? What if there's a God who created us? A God who not only created us but gave us a guide both concerning how he made us and how he designed the world to work so that if, if you are trying to use the object in a way that the creator didn't make the object to be used, it's not going to work right. You think about that. Uh, I'm not one for directions very much. But every once in a while, I'll have to pull out a direction book because something isn't working the way that I think it's supposed to work. And then I discover there's a reason it's not working the way that I thought it was supposed to work. It's because somebody made it to work a different way. And then I begin to do it the way it was supposed to be. And all of a sudden, I find out that I was at fault, not the, not the creator of the product. But you see, the creator of this product is God. He made our world. And then he told us how we're supposed to live in it. And if we choose to live a different way, what are we going to find? We're going to find tension, challenge, struggle, and frustration. So what we have to understand and what we have to be able to express to unbelievers is the reason we disagree is because we have vastly different views on the most important questions of life. Now, why is that important? I think it's important for this reason. And it comes back to that second point, ignorance. How will our neighbors, non-believers within our communities, how will they come to understand our worldview? It's probably not going to be by watching CNN or Fox News. How will your neighbor, the one who puts the political sign in his front yard that may disagree with your political sign in the front yard, and and you think, well, okay, well, what am I supposed to do here? Because, you know, maybe they're hearing from their news station that you're bigot, hypocrite, all these sorts of things. How might they actually know that you're not actually those things? Or vice versa, I mean... you. Maybe your news station tells you all sorts of things about, your, about the other group. How are you going to know what they believe, what they think? I think the point here is that we have to have relationships with our neighbors, with people who disagree with us, so that when they say things about us that are false, that are illegitimate, that just are completely wrong, or when they hear about it on the news... Here's what Christians believe. Here's what Christians are trying to do to our nation. But they know you. They say, that doesn't make sense. Because I know a Christian. And that Christian is the most loving person I know. That Christian cares for me. Now, I know that he disagrees with me. And I know why he disagrees with me. Because he has a different view of life. So here's my point. Coming back to this, I think sometimes the reason that we misunderstand one another, both us to the world and the world to us, is because we don't understand that we come from differing worldviews. And in order for them to understand that we are simply not just bigoted people, the language often used is hate language, right? Or fear language. How will they know that those things are not true of us? The only way they're going to know is if they know us. So there's a third thing, and i got to hurry here. Uh, there's a third thing. So we talked first about the fact that unbelievers should be surprised about our lifestyle. The second thing we talked about was that uh, unbelievers sometimes act in surprising ways. That is, by persecuting us for us doing Good. That really shouldn't be all that surprising, but that is what takes place. The third thing I want to think about in terms of surprise is God's response should not be surprising. God's response should not be surprising. Notice this in verse number five. But they, that is those who speak evil of Christians, speak blasphemy against them. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living God. And the dead. You know, one of the things that the scripture tells us is deeply embedded in the human heart is the fact that there is a coming judgment. First comes death, and then comes the judgment, and mankind knows that one day we'll all stand before the Creator. Some men would love to reject this truth, but it's deeply embedded within the heart. We know it. It should not surprise us that one day we will all give account for the way in which we live. The language of giving account is quite interesting. A little bit earlier in chapter 3, Peter said that believers have to give account. But there, he said, when you are called into uh, an engagement with an unbeliever, then be ready always to give an account of the hope that you have within you. So be able to give a reason for the way in which you are living, the hope that you have. But you see, our account must be given before men in this age. But there's something deeply more significant here. Because this accounting will be at the final day in the judgment of God. You'll notice it says here, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That language of readiness indicates that God is not presently aloof popular conceptions of God are that he's if in fact there's a God out there he's not going to judge anything he's just sitting on his hands but the text tells us he is ready to judge the living and the dead he is ready to step in and at what time the father sends the son to judge the living and the dead he is eager to do it to put all wrongs right the judge of all the earth will do So it should not be surprising that God will judge. And there's two elements of this. The first is that unbelievers must give an account. But the second, and this comes to us as believers, believers will live by the Spirit. Notice this in verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. Well, what's this? What's the reason that the gospel is preached? It's because God is coming Jesus, his son, he's sending his son to come to, to judge the living and the dead. And so it says, for this reason, the gospel is preached, even to those who are now dead. Now, I like the way the NIV puts this, because it says to those who are now dead. Actually, in the Greek, it just says, this is why the gospel is preached to those who are dead. And we think, well, is there like some, some after-death proclamation of the gospel. But I think the NIV is absolutely right here. Peter's point is, this is the reason the gospel is preached to people, to mankind, so that when they died and the judgment would later come, they would all be held accountable for their actions. In other words, I think that there are some who think that by, that when mankind does evil, gets away with it and die, or, and dies, they got away with it. And one of, the, one of the tragic truths that uh, those who do not know Christ have to come to grips with is in their worldview, that's exactly what happens. There is no judgment to come. But here's what God's Word says. No, there is a judgment to come, and every one of us will stand to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And it's for this reason that every man is presented at least in this context, this, these individuals, with the gospel. So that, though they may be judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live according to God in the life to come. What Peter's saying is that there are two two standards of judgment that we must all be aware of. There, There is the standard of man's judgment. And those who live according to that standard, those who gauge their life by that standard, will one day have to give account before God, and that will not go well for them. But those who embrace God's ultimate standard, the, the standard for the end of time, will actually be judged negative by man's standard today. And this is very hard, isn't it? Because we are made to want to be people pleasers. Maybe I'm just speaking about myself, but I don't think so. I think all of us, I, I hate the feeling of rejection. I hate being judged for what I believe. I, I hate that. And yet what Peter is telling us is, you see, the Gospels preached to us so that, yes, we may be judged deficient according to human standards. Man may look at us and say, bigot, hater of mankind. Ultimately, we don't live for man's judgment. Man may judge us negatively. But God will judge us positively. And our brother here mentioned that Jesus first walked this path so that we might walk this path. How was Jesus treated by mankind? The sinless one. Is there any man who would live this life who could actually live it in such a way that he should never ever deserve censure? That he should never ever deserve persecution for his actions it would be Jesus but just look at the gospel narrative and look at the way in which he ultimately sacrificed for the sake of righteousness so if that is the path he walked he was condemned by by man's judgment but he was vindicated by the judgment of God and so we too though judged by mankind to be deficient will be judged by God to be righteous. And so we will live by the Spirit. This is the same language that referred to Jesus' resurrection. He was raised by the Spirit. So we likewise, sharing in his redemption, sharing in his righteousness, will likewise be deemed innocent at the final judgment. So what do we do with this passage then? These three surprises. I would say... There are four applications I want us to think through. The first is this. Live surprising lives. Live in such a way that your unbelieving neighbor does say, what's wrong with that person? Why are they so different? We ought to rejoice in our differences with our world. Don't shy away from our differences, embrace them and say, yes, I'm different than you. And that's because I have a different hope than you have. I live for a different reason than you do. Second, do know though that that in itself, that living differently is going to cause you problems. The source of your greatest frustrations will be your attempt to live righteously in this life and the response of our world in regard to that. Third then, show the light of God's kindness in your suffering. Show the light of God's kindness in your suffering. And what I mean by that, I have chosen those words carefully here. One of Peter's points throughout the entire book of 1 Peter is that we can, by means of our suffering, share the light of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Abandon the passions of the flesh and live honorably among the Gentiles so that they may see the light of Christ and be redeemed by it. In the same way, Peter here is telling us, Yes, you may be spoken of as evil, but when you are, respond with grace and kindness because this will shed the light of Christ. This is what Christ did. And by means of that, he redeemed mankind. The fourth and final thing, and perhaps the most important for this passage is this. Remember the future. You're not living for the approval of men. The moment you embrace Christ, you were bought with a price. You're no longer your own. So I don't live for what men think of me. I live for what God thinks of me. And I think there are two things that we've got to think of in reference to the future. Remember that we are living for the ultimate judgment of God. One day we'll stand not before the judgment bar of humanity to determine whether we are righteous or not, but before the bar of God to determine whether we are righteous or not. But don't forget that unbelievers will stand there too. And so those with whom we interact those with whom we disagree so strongly, who we have vastly different worldviews, part of the reason that we ought to care deeply about them is because they are made in God's image. And one day they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the, the judgment seat of God. And their future will be determined at that moment. And so, how ought we to be then, knowing that that judgment is coming? We ought to be reaching out to those, even to the ones who persecute us. But then on the opposite side, remember the future this way, that those who do persecute us, that, that those who commit egregious evil in this life and appear on the judgment bar of man to totally get away with it, they will not get away with it. There is a judgment coming, and God will make all wrongs right. And we can rejoice in that. But we can also rejoice in the future resurrection of the saints. You know, God be praised. In the West, at least, we have not seen martyrdoms for a long, long time. I don't know what the future holds. We might see them again. I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, but uh, it just is the case that in various parts of the world, martyrdom still takes place. And it's possible. But even if that were to happen again, remember the future. We don't live for the approval of men. We live for the approval of God. How then should we live today? So 1 Peter 4 says, They're surprised when you don't join them in this same flood of debauchery. And so they speak evil of you. What do we do? Even when we're spoken evil against we, we seek to reach out to those who persecute us because we know, we remember the future. There is a day of judgment coming and that day of judgment will deal with us. And thankfully, we don't stand before the judgment seat of man, but the judgment seat of God, but it'll also deal with them. So how ought we to live in light of that coming judgment? Father, I thank you for the time you've given to us to consider this passage in First Peter chapter 4. Help us, Lord, to... Embrace the truth of it. Help those here who may be struggling right now with some tensions they experience, perhaps at work, perhaps within their family, over what they've embraced as truth according to your word, and yet there are many who oppose them. I pray that they would remember your coming judgment. As your word tells us, you are ready to judge the living and the dead. And so may we be passionate in our evangelism and always remembering that our ultimate vindication will not come in this age. And if we are condemned in this age, all the more we will be celebrated in the age to come. Remind us that this is a time of accumulating rewards for the age to come. Thank you again for these people who sit before me. May they be faithful to your dear cause. In Jesus' name, amen.